particularly honored to be here. Um, and I have a glass of wine, and I'm stoked. It's just absolutely perfect. Um, I have to say, I, I feel so nice to be here in the mission team because um, my my background is Latino. I'm my mother is Cuban, my father is Venezuelan, Nicaraguan. I come from Miami. Um, this is this is me, and I and I. I didn't even know there were people on Zoom. Hi, I'm sorry, people on Zoom. Okay. Um, so, so being here is like is really like being at home. Before I before I uh, I just want to I mean, not not many people know about this. I just wanted to ask you all if you know anything about him. Anything really, like just. Thought I'd make this up slightly interactive. Yes, he is. He was a famous vegetarian, right? Yeah. Husband to Mary Shelley. That's right. That's that is that is the thing he is known best for, and I kind of love that. I think that's amazing. He did. It was and two hundred years ago, so on on July eighth. So I thought. When, when else am I going to be able to give a lecture on Percy Shelley? So I thought, 200th anniversary, let me do it. Let me do it today. Um, you're right. Anything else? Yeah. When students come in contact with his poetry, they're hooked. They're hooked. But it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot to be said about his life, his works, just how influential he became in only 29 years um, since he died at such a young age. Um, he's associated with rebellion against authority, the power of the visionary imagination and of poetry, um, the pursuit of ideal love, the untamed spirit ever in search of freedom. Um, when one thinks of Shelley, you, you think of the visionary pursuit of the ideal. Um, these are all things that got me hooked. And it's actually why I do what I do today, right? All these ideas, um, I just fell in love with. You think of him and you think of an insistence on taking a controversial side of issues, even if at the risk of being unpopular and ridiculed. Uh, his name and work are associated with the radical left and is a prominent part of the history of advocating for complete social overhaul. That is something that he stood for um, and what his poetry stood for. Uh, and the very name of Shelley has evokes the strongest of feelings, either the strongest of criticism and condemnations or the warmest praise bordering on worship. Um, he's considered one of the greatest lyric poets uh, in the English language and his influence on uh, his, his later writings influenced many people, uh, people that you likely know, C.S. Lewis, Karl Marx, Robert Browning, Upton Sinclair, W.B. Yeats, um, he had an enduring and profound influence on Alejandro Carpentier, who's this famous uh, uh, 20th century Cuban writer. Um, critics such as Matthew Arnold, right, this stuffy Victorian critic, um, endeavored to rewrite Shelley's uh, legacy to make him seem a lyricist and a dilettante. He famously, Matthew Arnold famously said that Shelley is a beautiful and ineffectual angel beating this is a great quote, beating in the void his luminous wings in vain. And that is one of the, the classic quotes that has stuck in Shelley criticism. 
Um, this position contrasted strongly with the judgment of the previous generation who really believed emphatically that he was this skeptic and this radical, another snotty poet like T.S. Eliot dismissed him as a poet of adolescent protest. Anyway, I thought I would just give you a little bit about his life because knowing a little bit about his life really uh, says a lot about his poetry. Plus, his, his he, you know, he, he lived with Mary Shelley, right? That's how we know him. Lord Byron, these are all like really famous authors that, that I love to study and I have the privilege to, to study. So I'll talk a little bit and then at the end, if you have any questions about anything I've said, please, I hope you'll ask. Any ideas that dawn on you, please. I, I would love to have a conversation with all of you. And if, and if you want to interrupt me on the, along the way, please, please do. So he was born on August 4th, 1792. So his birthday was just a few days ago. Uh, oh, is it? I love that. I love that. I should know that. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, Obama wasn't born then, but but <laughs> but Shelley was right. 1792. That was the year of the terror in in, in France. Um, he got the the bish his middle name from his grandfather. Um, they, they 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 were an aristocratic family. He was the elder son among one brother, John, and four sisters: uh, Elizabeth, Mary, Margaret, Helen. Um, he stood in line to inherit his grandfather's um, title. His grandfather was an MP, um, member of parliament. Um, he, he was, as far as the biographers tell us, he was a really great older brother, really um, um, supportive of all of his siblings. Oh, I forgot I had slides about all of this. Well, anyway, this is where he um, grew up in Field Place, Horsham, um, Sussex. Um, just to give you an idea of where this is located in, in Britain today in the South, Sussex's South. Um, he went to uh, Field uh, Science House Academy in 1802. So he was at the age of 10. This is where his, uh, his elementary school phase. And the reason why I mentioned this is because here he was, he had a very frail, body, very skinny, short. He was the object of bullying. Um, and it was made worse by his, bless you, and it was made worse by his uh, really bad temper and his really poor fighting skills. So uh, this really starts to, to, to create his, his mindset and his vision, this being the object of, of, of bullies. Um, he went to Eden. Uh, you can just tell Larry, this is really privileged uh, individual. He was there for, for six years. I mean, this is a place where Thomas Gray attended. It was an all-male institution. Um, it still is. He entered there at the age of, of 12. Um, Eden and Harrow are pre pretty much the most elite institutions in, in Britain. Um, it's, it's right near Windsor Castle in, in Britain wanted to give you some some uh, geographical connections um bless you um so he began writing poetry here at eton and uh some of which were actually published in 1810 um 
it's it's not some of his best work, but there are some some admirable bits and pieces. But I, I do want to mention that it was here that he wrote his first novel. He was just a teenager and he wrote Strozzi, a gothic romance, right? It, the whole the whole gothic novel uh, phenomenon just was was born in the 18th century. And he this was like the vogue of the day. And he was participating in it by writing and producing all these classic tropes in this tradition. And I just read it for the first time a few months ago, and I think it is brilliant. Um, he wrote it at a very young age, and I think he wrote it to say, like, you know what, I can do this. I'm, I have mastered this, but I'm going to move on to bigger and better things. The BBC actually made <laughs> a, a, a film series, I think a TV series out of it. I think it's a four, a four episodic uh, series. Um, okay. So, okay, then we get to the more interesting part of his life. He gets to Oxford University. His father uh, campaigns for him to go there. Um, uh, so he went there in 1810, and he was already a published and reviewed author, a voracious reader with several intellectual interests. Um, his father, this was a picture of his father, was very proud at this point in his life, very proud of his son. He says, yes, my son is going to be a star. Um, uh, please do everything you can to make his time at Oxford wonderful. Well, Shelley meets his uh, friend at the time, Thomas Hogg. They they establish a very close relationship, a meeting that would change their lives forever. The two young men become immediate friends, each stimulating each other's imagination. Together, they have animated discussions of philosophy, literature, science, magic, religion, politics. Not kidding. Not kidding. Shelley would actually conduct scientific experiments in his dorm room in Hogg's presence, and Hogg would record all of this, right? If you're thinking Frankenstein, you are thinking correctly, right? What the model for Victor Frankenstein might be, yes, right? It's There is a connection in many ways. In fact, the creature in Frankenstein, if you read the novel Frankenstein, which most people don't, but if you read the novel, right, the creature's vegetarian, the, uh, the, which, is, which goes back to Percy Shelley's influence, um, Victor Frankenstein is a mad scientist. He's a student, though. He's not a doctor, right? We, I can talk more about Frankenstein in the Q&A. So I, I, I love talking about it. Um, okay, so, um, so they're at Oxford. Um, he went to University College in Oxford, where he was successful until a certain point. He was learned, gifted, as you know. He was truly ambidextrous. He excelled in the sciences. He excelled in the arts. He was skilled in both creative and critical prose, which is not easy. You can have a very talented poet who cannot actually write prose, or vice versa. He excelled at both. And that is just an objective statement. I, would just, I can just give you statements that he's written. Um, he excelled in drama, too. Um, but here's where the fun part comes in. It was in 1810 that he and Hogg co-authored this pamphlet, The Necessity of Atheism. And he was so uh, uh, emphatic about all of its doctrines that he decided to publish it himself and circulate it throughout all of Oxford. I mean, the title really speaks for itself. 
Um, and he sent it to all the heads of Oxford University um, because this is just the kind of person he was. Um, they, they circulated it anonymously, but they were caught. And as a result, they were both expelled from Oxford University. They were, they were. You can just imagine how now there's tensions between him and his father because his father advocated on his behalf. And now suddenly the son sold the father out, right? And tarnished the Shelley name, which is something um, you should not do. Let me just talk a little bit about this. It's the, the pamphlet, it's, the title's more inflammatory than the actual content. Um, basically the argument is this, right? That belief cannot come from a voluntary act of will. The burden of proof for belief can be found in only three sources. This is what the, this is what the argument is, the senses, reason and testimony. This is why there is a necessity for atheism. We cannot, in other words, prove the existence of a deity. Um, so the Oxford folks said, okay, recant and you can stay. Profess your, your um, allegiance and your beliefs in Christianity. And guess what? He said, hell no. He was expelled. Um, so the next two years were very rocky for Shelley, right? He had a lot of personal and financial affairs um, that were that were that were very rocky, and still he was trying to, you know, get his literary um, pursuits on the on on the roll. This this is fun. At the end of the nineteenth century, guess what? University College at Oxford College at, at Oxford University said, "Well, shit, our most famous alum is Percy Shelley. What are we going to do?" This is the memorial to Percy Shelley today at Oxford University, University College. So fun. Guess what? Guess who said, I'm sorry, it's Oxford University. And they built this um, memorial that I, I think this is my picture uh, too. It's a beautiful memorial, really. Some people think that the, the statue in front of, of the dead Shelley is um, Mary Shelley. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I haven't actually corroborated that, but I, I, I'd like that to be. I think that's that's actually lovely because they did have a, a tense relationship, but but they certainly were highly collaborative, both of them. I don't know. I don't know, but I can find it out for you. Definitely someone that Oxford commissioned, right, to make sure that they were on the right side of history. Okay, so um, at this time, right, he's still a teenager. He meets Harriet Westbrook falls in love, but what he's really drawn to is the fact that he wants to rescue her from what he thinks is an oppressive situation, an, oppress an oppressive father and an oppressive boarding school, right? Here's where we start to have mixed feelings about Percy Shelley, potentially. Um, they eloped at their very young age. They went to Edinburgh, they eloped. Um, and of course, this is where the scandal starts. It's around this time, at maybe a few months after, that he meets his political and literary hero is William Godwin. Has anyone ever heard that name before? Who is he? Correct. Mary Shelley's father. This is how this, the plot thickens, right? Um, so he meets him who he had just published this pamphlet called Political Justice, right? In the way, in, in the middle of the French Revolution, which basically it's like, his argument is this, 
we are gradually moving towards perfection. And it's reason that is going to take the entire human community there. Well, this document, and it's also this document where he says marriage is a vile institution created by humanity. And this is, we, we should not, we should not buy into the institution of marriage. And he said other incredible things in the pamphlet. Anyway, this is how Percy Shelley began to fall in love with William Godwin. And he found out the dude is still alive. He lives just down the street. I'm going to make sure I do anything in my power to meet him. He sends him a letter, tells him how much he's, he's uh, infatuated with his work, with him. I think Godwin thought it was a little creepy. Um, so he thought, okay, talk about activism. He thought, okay, I'm not just gonna be a writer. I'm gonna be an activist too. He, 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 he writes this pamphlet and address to the Irish people and he actually goes to Ireland and starts handing this pamphlet out. And what he's basically advocating here is, you know what, the Irish deserve their emancipation, right? Great Britain had just been formed in 1800 and, and Great Britain had assumed Ireland, right? This is a very long history that I won't bore you with now, but basically 1800, it was a, a version of colonialism. Great Britain said, no, we're, we're subsuming Ireland even though there's no, there's no joint history whatsoever. Um, so in 1812, he goes to Ireland with Harriet, his first wife, and says, you know what? No, you Irish people deserve emancipation and I want you to reach. So he actually in his life did a form of activism. So I wanted to, um, to, to, to share that with you. He did caution nonviolence. He said, yes, you need to emancipate yourselves, but you cannot do it violently. violently. And that is something he always stood by, non-violence. You cannot do things violence. So he called for universal emancipation, inter ideas like international republicanism, and, and saw Ireland as a part of what he deemed to be a universal uh, brotherhood. And yeah, he used the term brotherhood. You know, It was 200 years ago, unfortunately. Um, Okay, trying to give you all this very, very quickly. So he, 1812, he, at the end of 1812, he finally meets Godwin, um, who ultimately failed to live up to his idealized image of him. In fact, Godwin just was, just became a financial burden to both him and Mary Shelley eventually. It's a very rocky relationship that they establish. Um, this is Shelley's first major poem, Queen Mab. And I want to just tell you a little bit about it because it's a really major um, uh, publication. He called it a philosophical poem. Um, it's a political epic in which the fairy queen Mab, right? You think Romeo and Juliet, right? That queen Mab, that's exactly the, the fairy he's, he's talking about. Um, the queen Mab takes the spirit of Ianti. Ianti is his first daughter with his wife, Harriet. So it's a very, a very sweet thing about his work. Um, he takes, this, the fairy takes Ianti on a space and time journey. And this is part of a, a tradition of 18th century writing that Shelley is, is drawing on. The Mab acts as Ianti's guide. This is an entirely like, I'm gonna teach you what is right, you little child, you, right? The fairy comes down to earth, steals Ianti who is asleep and takes her 
on a journey through the past, the present, and the future. It really is a beautiful poem in many ways. It's hard to read, um, but the first two cantos are devoted to a, a, a look at the past. The, the, the four cantos in the middle are an indictment of what is wrong with society today. What is wrong with tyranny? What is wrong with war, commerce, wealth, religion? Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations had just been published. Like He was living in the birth of capitalism, really. And he's indicting absolutely everything that is wrong with commercial society. And then the final two cantos of the poem are like, oh, what, what can we aspire to? Of course, classic Shelley, what can we aspire to? Well, we can have an egalitarian society, right? We can have a society where there is no killing of animals. Well, we're all vegetarians because that is absolutely against our nature. It's something that, that he believed. Um, that it's very Godwinian, right? He thought we are on our way to that perfect moment. We can become perfectionized. They really, I mean, they really believed this, right? Um, other things, right? He attacked religion, monarchy, wealth, used it to advocate vegetarianism, of course, free love right? We don't believe in the institution of marriage, so it advocates free love, something Mary Shelley did not like. Um, she did not. And then, of course, you know, he was a man of science, so it also, he also talked, it, there were several explanatory notes on geology, astronomy, necessity, the labor theory of value, um, many things. Anyway, um, in the 1830s and 40s, the Chartist movement in Britain, pretty much the first the first labor movement in Britain, they used Queen Mab as their Bible, as their unofficial Bible. Like this is the kind of stuff um, that 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 speaks our language, right? And it was a, it was it was for men only at the time, but they were fighting for democracy. They were fighting against corruption, wage cuts, unemployment, um, etc. So. Um, so he became, so Shelley at this time became, especially after the publication of Queen Map, he became a frequent visitor at Godwin's home. And um, these are the three ladies that he met. Um, so Mary Godwin, Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, actually, she's the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin, um, Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, and then um, Mary's other stepsister, Fanny Imling. So, Claire was the daughter of Godwin with his second wife. Fanny was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft with her second, with her first husband, excuse me. Um, let me talk a little bit about Mary Godwin. And by the way, Percy Shelley did believe that Mary Shelley was the perfect union between the two brightest of, of, of peoples. Like he did believe that, right? He idealized William Godwin, but Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, She's the mother of modern feminism. And he thought this is the perfect harmony right here in this person, right? Um, he did believe that till, to the very end. Um, so she really did have an, Mary Shelley really did have an uh, independent mind. It would go to, and they connected instantly. Uh, I mean, they had, they had so much in, in common and she wasn't like, Many biographers say that Harriet was a little more passive in her um, approaches, right? Would would pretty much deify Shelley, and that's not the way Mary Shelley was, right? She didn't deify 
him, they were pretty much two equals according to all of their accounts, all of their letters. Um, so this might come as a surprise to you, but William Godwin really opposed this, this relationship, especially because, because Percy was married, right? He was married. He was also espousing these very radical beliefs, right? Queen Mab was extremely, a, a really radical uh, poem. And to have these kinds of beliefs at this time, like even today, it's a radical poem, right? I mean, obviously less so, right? And especially we're in San Francisco, fine. Okay, this is like less radical, but but at the time, can you imagine? This is two hundred years ago, in 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 a in a society in which right across the English Channel, they had just killed, they had just murdered the Queen and King, right? Because they wanted all people in society to be equal. And Britain is like, F that. We're not going to do this. Absolutely not. So it was an entirely repressive society. And so imagine he's he's publishing this, this material. And, and Godwin doesn't want his daughter associated with someone like this, even though he himself had published material like this. Anyway, long story short, and you know this story. They um, oh, this is this, this is Mary Shelley's parents. Long story short, and you know this story, 1814, Shelley says, you know what, let's go, let's elope. They go to, they go to Europe and they elope um, against everyone's advice. Um, meanwhile, his first wife is giving birth to a second child, a son, yes, second son, Charles. Um, it's, it's the, the, the plot is thickening, it's getting very ugly. Um, you know this too. So 1815, Percy Shelley's finances are getting a little better. His, his grandfather has passed away, so he gets a bit of an inheritance. He doesn't lay claim to the, to the MP name or title. But 1816, his connection with Mary is, has been solidified. And um, th their best, the best option for all of them is like, you know what? We're just going to go in exile. Let's get out of here. Why stay in Britain? It's such a repressive society. And um, at the bottom center, that's Claire Claremont, Mary's um, stepsister. And she forms a connection with Lord Byron, who is on the upper left-hand corner. She falls in love with him. He has a series of scandals himself that I'm happy to talk about uh, in, in the Q&A. But basically, he's charged with sodomy. He's also charged with um, having a sexual relationship with his half-sister. So he has to flee Britain because, and this is in 1816, because he will get arrested. So in April 1816, he flees and Claire at the bottom center says, no, no, we need to follow him. Mary, Percy, follow me. Let's go to Europe and we will go and have a great time. Well, they did. They went to Europe. Lord Byron rented this beautiful home in Switzerland. That's the that's um, top. Uh, so that's the home there, Via Diodati. You can visit it today. It's a museum, and um, this is where they have their famous summer of 1816. They all end up there. Um, the person on the bottom right is Dr. John Polidori, who was who was Byron's physician, who Byron convinced to go with him to the continent, and it is Dr. Polidori who wrote the tale, The Vampire, um, and it was based on Lord Byron. 
and our idea of the modern aristocratic vampire, you think of vampire diaries, think of interview with a vampire, all goes back to Polidori's tale. This is a fun fact that not many people know. I mean, vampire legend had existed for centuries, for millennia, but it was this moment, right? When Byron said there was a huge, like it was a, it was a dark summer in Switzerland because Mount Tambora had just erupted in Indonesia and the whole globe had turned dark, perpetually dark. It was a dark rainy summer and they were there and he said, and they couldn't do much but stay indoors. And Byron said, you know what? Let's have a ghost story competition, right? Let's see who can write the best one. Well, that's the one that Dr. John Polidori wrote, The Vampire. That is what he's best known for today. But what other work came from that summer? It was Frankenstein, right? No one remembers what Byron wrote. No one remembers what Shelley wrote. But everyone remembers Frankenstein. And I love that. It's amazing. And I'm happy to talk more about Frankenstein in the Q&A because it's, it's really just a fascinating um, story. So Byron and Shelley didn't really know each other at, before this time, but they really, really bonded um, during um, that Swiss um, summer, that really infamous Swiss summer, which apparently the maker of Riverdale, I forget his name, is creating a series now based on this very story. It's called, he's going to call it the Shelley Society, apparently. I don't know. We'll, We'll see. I'm not a big fan of Riverdale, so I don't know. I'm not really looking forward to it. Uh, <laughs> um, scandal, scandal ensues, um, and this is this is really bad. They find out at the end of the summer of 1816 that Fanny Imlay, Mary Shelley's uh, one stepsister, committed suicide, and also that Harriet Shelley had committed suicide too. At the time, yeah, yeah, it's 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 really bad. And to add insult to injury, um, the, 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 the Westbrooks, Harriet's family, is trying to sue Percy Shelley for custody of his two children. Um, and guess what they're using as their defense? They're, they're, you, no, that's a great guess. You're right. That, I mean, that, that, that could have been used too, and I'm sure it was. But they're using Queen Mab. They're saying, look at what this person is capable of writing. Look at his vicious ideas. And guess what? He lost the custody case. And the Westbrooks um, took over custody of his two children. Um, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip a lot. Um, they go, so they, because of those tragedies, they do go back to England for a little bit, but then they say, you know what? We're not gonna stay here. So in 1818, they go back to, and they go they go to Italy and this is and then per Percy Shelley will never return to his homeland after this right he will stay in Italy for the rest of his life until 1822 when he um, dies it's um, it's at this time where um, they, they were also helping Byron take care of his daughter Allegra who was the daughter of, Claire, of Byron and Claire Claremont Mary Shelley's stepsister they were all in this enclave together and they all decided together in March 1818 to go to um, Italy and stay there and they travel all throughout um, the Italian peninsula um, and this is where he wrote some, pretty much his greatest 
poetry. And that's what I want to talk about today after I tell you just a little bit about his life, which I know is a bit expanded, but um, it really gives you a sense of how important the biography is to reading the, the poetry. Um, you know, Mary, Mary and he had, had several children together, but most of them did not live. So that is a, another another layer of tragedy that really befalls them. It's it's a it's uh, it is really a tragic story in, in many ways. Um, Shelley wrote in several genres, right? Poetry, prose, drama. He was an artist, a critic, steeped in the classics and philosophy. Um, and as I said, right on the eighth of July, eighteen twenty-two, Shelley drowned off Italy. He couldn't swim. He couldn't swim, and I don't know why he decided to go on a on a boat. Um, but his boat sank. It was caught in a storm, um, and he and his best one of his best friends, Edward Trelawney, um, uh, died too. He was cremated after his body turned up off the coast of Italy just eight days later. This is a famous portrait of of that moment. Um, you can see. Um, I, I'm, I'm forgetting who the artist is here, but it's a French artist who who did this at the end of the 19th century. You, you are right. I just saw this painting in person like a week ago. It's in Liverpool, England. It's in the Walker Art Gallery. Yeah, it's a French, uh, I think it's Fournier is a French um, artist. Anyway, um, you can see uh, Lord Byron there. He's the one standing in the middle with, um, um, yeah, with the, with the, black, the black top. He's holding a hat. Um, so he was cremated. His ashes are buried in the Protestant cemetery. It's actually the non-Catholic cemetery in Rome. Um, this is his grave site. Um, you, you, I mean, you can see it today. And he is beside his son, William, and his good friend, um, John Keyes, who also died in Rome um, in 1821. Okay, that's the biography. Okay, <laughs> I wanted to talk a bit about his poetry, because that, I, that really is the exciting stuff. And I thought, wow, what should I talk about? What should I talk about? And I thought, okay, I'm just going to talk about this sonnet, because this is his mo probably his most famous sonnet. You've probably heard it before. Um, it was even in Breaking Bad. <laughs> and I want, I want to play for you Walter White's um, version of, of Ozymandias, and then I want to talk a little bit about it. He does such a good job. I want to talk a little bit about the poem and invite any of your ideas about it too. But I want to ask you, why do you think the producers of Breaking Bad used this poem in particular? And this was 
I think I can see if you figured it out. I think it was in the fourth season that this episode appeared. So we know, we know that Walter White, and I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for everyone, but we know that Walter White has entirely devolved by season four. So I want to ask you, why do you think they used this poem for one of their episodes? Okay. Um, so here are some, some, some thoughts. I mean, there's so many ways to enter this poem. There is no one correct way to enter this poem, um, but I'll give you some reflections on it. And if you have any questions or you have any thoughts, please, please, please um, share them. Um, so he wrote this poem because of a contest, um, a sonnet writing contest, right? Remember sonnet, 14 lines. It's like a formula, right? It has to be, has to have a, a certain rhythm. It has to have a certain number of, each line has to have a certain number of syllables that are, are, are conformed to a very particular formula. There have to be uh, certain rhyme schemes, right? This is not an easy thing to write. And then once you actually have words that fit this formula, they have to be good. It's, 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 it's very hard. hard. Anyway, um, guess what? He won the contest. Um, one, of my, one of my professors from, from undergrad said, never get into a writing contest with Percy Shelley. You will, <laughs> you will lose. Um, okay, what's the poem about? Okay, so it's, there's a big statue it's about a big statue in the middle of a desert, and it's it's likely ancient Egypt. So it's a big statue about a pharaoh um, who once had this great rule, but now it symbolizes the scene that Shelley's talking about, symbolizes the emperor's fall and the limitations of what once seemed like his almighty, his omnipotence, his almighty power. So who are the personalities and characters in the poem? There's a speaker, there's a traveler, there's Ozymandias, which is the statue and the king, and there's the artist. There's four characters in this one scene, right? But Shelley takes a very unusual route in setting this scene up. If you notice, look at line one. I met a traveler from an antique land. That I never comes back, never comes back. In fact, we go from the I to a traveler who then reports something about something else. Um, so the I is immediately removed, it's erased. The first person speaker is distanced from the scene of the poem altogether. And I, I would argue that this is a deliberate choice for this, for the subject matter of this poem, this, this distancing, this alienating effect. Um, so the speaker is reporting on another speaker, an unnamed traveler from a distant land. And this, so this person is totally anonymous. Um, this unnamed traveler then reports about their experience, their encounter with this colossal statue but they don't even say ancient egypt i had to i had to say that right so it's a very enigmatic scene especially when you first encounter it so this report this story arrives through various 
layers. Um, I'm trying to think of a metaphor right now and I can't, but just imagine like several layers removed or like maybe you have like a dollar bill and you have on a bed and you have many sheets over it, right? You can think about like you're so, so, so much distancing between you and that dollar um, bill. Um, so the mysterious distancing created in the poem continues, right? Ozymandias in the report proclaims who and what he is, right? Ozymandias is the king, the pharaoh, but both of these statements end up being ironic. Ozymandias says, look on my works because they're so great, because they are unmatched, but all that greatness has crumbled. Even when he says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, there's another irony, because Ozymandias is the Greek name for Ramses II. And so it's another mode of removal, right? We're not using his direct name, but we're using a translation of that name that we get from the historian Herodotus. So all of these things are working in, 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 in very intelligent ways. Okay, but yet even in this poem, it's very difficult to say who or what the object of irony is, right? You could say, okay, this is about making fun and, and, and showing that this is an anti-monarchical statement, that this is a poem that is going to speak truth to power. You could make that claim, right? It's a satirical take on the false pride of kings and emperors. Absolutely. I mean, that is blatant, right? This is entirely aligned with everything that Percy Shelley stood for. So that belief is perfect. This poem could also be a poem about Napoleon. Napoleon was the major ruler at the time who had rocked everyone's world. Napoleon, after the king and queen were beheaded, right, took power again, right, and became even more powerful than the king and queen. And people thought, oh my goodness, what was this revolution for? Why did everyone die? What, what was, it was all in vain. So one could say, yes, this poem could very well be a statement about Napoleon because um, it was Napoleon, it was because of Napoleon that we even know anything about Ozymandias at the time, right? Because it was Napoleon's army that took the Rosetta Stone from Egypt, right? And that's how we were able to, to translate ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. So this is, this could, this argument could very well um, be made. And then in, and in 1818, when Shelley was writing this poem, Napoleon was in prison and in exile. So this could very well be a statement um, on that. So irony in the poem could also serve as an indirect reprimand to Britain, because Britain at the time was also like the great, becoming the greatest empire in the world. Sure, it lost its American colonies, right? We all know that story, but it gained every, so many other things simultaneously, right? Losing the United States was no big deal, right? The, the, one of the famous phrases was the sun never sets on the British empire. And it's true, right? They had so many colonies all over the world and we're still reckoning with this um, today, okay. Um, so we could talk, we could say the poem is about Brit the British Empire, but it's not just the king of kings whose work 
whose empire lies shattered, right? It's, it's also the work of the sculptor. <laughs> That's what makes this poem so fascinating, I think, right? Um, in, in other words, right, it's the artist, right? An artist who mocks and ironizes the king uh, is just as ephemeral as the king himself, right? I, couldn't you say like, okay, this, this big statue has collapsed too. Isn't that also a statement on like the ephemerality, the temporariness of art itself, right? That art can't outlast everything too. Words and stone are equally subject to time. So is omnipotent rule. Poet, sculptor, king, they're all implicated in this law of evanescence, right? The poet and sculptor are not exempt from the irony and instability that affect the king, right? It's about an artwork, a sculpture, but this is also a poem, another piece of art, right? Everything is subject to, right? That ephemeral, that ephemeral law, okay. Um, so although this poem presents a lot of mystery, you can read it in so many different ways, which I think is why it's so magisterial and it's so anthologized. Um, it's hard to pinpoint what exactly it's talking about. But we can say most generally, this is about mutability. This is about evanescence. This is a political satire, but also a poem about metaphysical speculation. It's an abstract poem about time and evanescence. And, and the contest that won him um, uh, during his life, that he won during his lifetime was probably pales in comparison to this being his most famous poem that you can find in any single anthology in British literature um, today. Okay, um, I wanna talk about one more poem. Oh, great. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so the question is, why did Breaking Bad use um, Ozymandias? Oh, really? Okay, great. The question? Oh, okay, sure. The ephemerality of power, right? Was ephemerality? Yeah, it's, it is a word like the temp, the temp, the temp. It's just a, a million dollar word for like temporariness, you know, the temporariness, right? The the mutability. Yeah, yeah. So this Kiara said it was about the ephemerality of power in response to Walter White? I love it. Walter White had a major fail, was going to have a major fail and he could see it coming. Awesome. What do you think? Do you think that's a good response? I mean, he did. Walter White did have this huge empire, right? And But he too fell, right? He too is subject to the laws indicated in this poem, right? Like, I hate to say it, but I feel very comfortable saying it here. I, I really thought about Donald Trump, right? With this poem, like, I feel, it feels like it was, uh, um, it, it, it's, it, it's very suiting. Um, 
to, to his kind of rise of power too. And it's comforting, right? I think it was, for me, it was very comforting. Um, anyway, I shouldn't have said that. Um, okay. <laughs> um, okay, one more sonnet and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Are we still okay on time? Yeah, okay. Okay, okay, great. Um, this is a, an, another uh, poem, not as, not as popular as, um, as Ozymandias, but, um, but still pretty, pretty popular. Um, the year 1819 was a pretty difficult one in Britain. So if you recall, he's in Italy now. He can write this kind of stuff because he's in exile in Italy. Um, it was a difficult time politically and personally. Um, there were many policies regarding censorship in Great Britain. Many civil liberties were revoked. Um, I mean, we understand this, right? There was a lack of free speech. There was a lot of great unrest in, in England. And I began to explain why this was the case. You know, the French Revolution had just occurred. Um, and he was in Italy, as I said. Um, they had already, the Shelleys had already lost two of their children. It was a really hard time. But there was this major event that occurred that was known, that is known today as the Peterloo Massacre in 1819. It happened in Manchester, England. Um, this was when the local government killed some revolters for peacefully protesting. They were peacefully protesting and they were just killed. Um, and so during an assembly in St. Peter's Fields in Manchester, where a crowd was to be addressed by an emphatic leader um, named Orator Hunt, the local militia charged the crowd, killing at least nine people and wounding many more. And there's a movie that was just made. I don't know if you know it. It's called Peter Lou. I wanted to show you the trailer, but it's based on this very event. So here is the trailer of, oh, the, right. This is, oh my goodness. It's, it's, it's today. Oh my God, tomorrow is the anniversary. Incredible, incredible. Look at this. Look how fitting all these, all these, all these coincidences are. Um, yeah, that's when it happened. This is the trailer of Peter Lou. We are on the brink of Remember these lines. You are many, they are few. Remember those lines. I haven't seen it personally, but here I am. Uh, saying, do as I say, not as I do, right? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go back to the poem. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'll, I'll read it. I'll try to do a good job. Um, England in 1819, again, it's another sonnet. An old, mad, blind, despised and dying king. Princes, the dregs of their dull race who flow through public scorn, mud from a muddy spring. Rulers who neither see nor feel nor know 
but leech-like to their fainting country cling till they drop blind in blood without a blow. A people starved and stabbed in the untilled field. An army whom liberty side and, and prey makes as a two-edged sword to all who wield. Golden and sanguine laws which tempt and slay. Religion Christless, godless, a book sealed. A senate, time's worst statute, unrepealed. Our graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. It always gets me. Um, it's a weird sonnet. If you're invested in the sonnet tradition, it's a weird one. Does anyone wanna take a chance on why it's a weird sonnet? So the poem was published anonymously in 1839. Imagine it happened in 1819, but it wasn't published until 1839. And guess who published it? Does anyone know who published it? His wife, Mary Shelley. She became his, his editor after 1822. She was his first editor. And that was she, that's what she devoted the rest of her years to, editing his works and publishing and making sure he got a name. It's It's very touching. She also wrote a novel called The Last Man that she published in 1826, which is, I think, just as good, if not better than Frankenstein. Yeah, it's wonderful. You can find an abridged version online and for free. And um, in the novel, I'm saying this because in the novel, she creates a character named Adrian that she bases on her husband, Percy Shelley. And again, it's like so such a tearjerker. Like the way she characterizes him in this uncritical Adrian can do no wrong kind of thing. It's very touching and it's and it's controversial because many people believe like, well, he was a jerk to her. Um, okay. Um, so it couldn't be published during his time. Right? It, he, it, even in Italy, right? It's just it was just so incendiary what he's saying here about his government, right? We could publish it today, right? About our government, but we, but he couldn't at the time, right? Anyone, anyone writing such poetry would be imprisoned instantly. Can you imagine, right? That's hard for us to conceive, but that was what they were living through. Anyway, the poem has a millenarianist uh, flair. Millenarianism is the doctrine or belief in a future thousand age year of blessedness, beginning with or culminating in the second coming of Christ. Um, it's central to the teachings of people like the Adventists, the Mormons, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the belief in a future golden age of peace, justice, and prosperity. So the form of the poem is brilliant. It's actually just one sentence. It's a stack of subject clauses, right? Like if I were to say Mary, Peter, Kate, Marie, and just listing out a whole bunch of names, went to the park right that's essentially what he's doing uh, in this poem it's, it has a very peculiar idiosyncratic rhyme scheme it doesn't follow the tradition of the of of of, of the song that he's it's not uh, it's not consistent right it's in iambic pentameter which means it has a certain rhythm um but it's irregular but it's, it has this irregular rhyme scheme um 12 lines of it the first, it's 14 lines, the sonnet, right? It's first 12 lines. 
are dedicated to pretty much all the crappy stuff that's going on in England. Everything that he's indicting. And then the two lines at the end are devoted potentially to something else. Maybe the opposite. We'll talk about it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enigmatic ending, and I want to know what you think about it. Um, the final lines say jura, which is a fancy, another million-dollar word for pause. <laughs> the pause comes right after first in that final line, our graves from which a glorious ransom made first. Right? Gives you a moment to catch your breath. Right? Um, does that mean, does that allow you to catch your breath because of the shock? Right? Is this the moment of revolution? We'll talk. We'll talk about this. Anyway, um, okay. So this bitter. This is a bitter list of the flaws in England's social fabric. King George the Third. You might remember him, right? He is that king that we rebelled against in 1776. Well, guess what? 1819. He is still alive and mad as hell. He is entirely deranged and delusional. It's very sad, actually. His son had to take over. So when Percy Shelley says, old, mad, blind, despised, and dying king, he's, he's right. That's actually the case. The nobility are the princes in the second line. They are insensible leeches draining their country dry. Does this sound familiar? The great line. The people are oppressed. They're hungry, they're hopeless, their fields are untilled. The army is corrupt and dangerous to its own people, right? Uh, he uses the, the phrase two-edged sword. Um, the laws are, are useless, right? There are, in, let's see, maybe line 10, no, line nine, golden and sanguine laws. Now, English laws do not represent justice. The use of golden is sarcastic um, um, because the laws violate ordinary morality. It's straightforward because the laws are only serving the rich. And this, and you could also think of the Old Testament, right? Golden as like the golden calf. Um, um, the laws are protecting private property, which is a kind of idol-like worship. Um, all these different ways to interpret the word uh, golden. Um, religion has become morally degenerate. A book sealed, right? That might very well be in reference to the Bible, right? We preach it, but we don't actually open it and read its contents. Um, so the furious violent metaphors Shelley employs throughout this list, um, nobles as leeches in muddy water. I mean, that is... That is a vivid image, right? The army is a two-edged sword. They protect us, but they also hurt us too. Um, religion's a sealed book. Parliament is an unjust law. Um, it leaves no doubt, right, about his feelings um, on the state of his nation. And the question is, after all of this, all of this, this catalog of injustices, how does the poem end? Um, is this, do you think this is optimistic? So there's this tradition that goes back to ancient Greece, 
that's called the deus ex machina. This is this was used in and in classical drama, right? Where the plot of a story, right? The plot would be resolved by literally bringing a statue of the God on stage and the God would just resolve all conflicts and tensions. This is the deus ex machina, right? This is what you can call the ending of this poem, right? It's, it means literally in Greek, God out of a machine. <laughs> so machines is bringing the God onto the stage. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I've said a lot. I mean, I want to know what I, I want to know what you think. What do you think about this ending? Because I'm constantly thinking about this ending, right? All of these things are graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. So someone said it's kind of like a phoenix image. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think also going back to your background about Christmas, it seems like we should have to compile it in some in the current state, right? And and similarly here, you basically said that we live in a dead day. Uh, and that death, you know, is is caused by itself and ending in a state of like complete I love that. I love that. So someone from the audience said that it's clear that this is a statement on like the death of his nation, right? There's there's nothing else.
Another word where everybody matters. That is quintessential. And this example is Jeremy Griffin. And we're saying that. And this is another famous book that we might know. And that is where it's headed in the forest. There's a service of the world. And it really captures everything. It's the power of the power of the Yes. 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 Yes.
Becklin was very interested in chemistry and experiments and then Uh, uh, so, yeah, so, 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 the question is about the, the bivacuous connections and the So, Victor is pretty much like a chemistry. He is with purpose and it's when, when reading the narratives, it's really because of him and his interest and his
Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for leading this. It was very nice to be here.